great God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that you speak it to us. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you work through him to speak your word, to make it effective. Please do make it effective in us. Please do tune our heads, hearts, and lives to what is truly real, the things that you reveal and command and promise. I ask it through your Son. Amen. Maybe you noticed as the passage was read, twice uh, in this reading, Peter says something about working hard. Verse 5, he says, make every effort. Verse 10, be all the more diligent. The punchline thing to do at the end of this letter uh, comes in this last verse. It's a command. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's lots in this letter about making every effort, about diligence, about growing. But Peter leads off by talking about faith in verse 1, grace in verse 2. How does all that effort fit with grace and faith? How does diligence about growing fit with God graciously and generously saying, come as you are through what Jesus has already done? How does determined effort to be different fit with faith which believes God who speaks? How does all that effort fit with grace and faith? How is it possible to make every effort and for what you're doing to still rest on God's grace? How is it possible to make every effort and for what you're doing to still be fundamentally about faith? I ask because I think this opening section helps us answer. I think it will help you if you're curious and exploring uh, what it would mean to follow Jesus. I think it will help if you're following the Lord Jesus as your rescuer. Uh, let's take a moment to get our bearings in the letter. Uh, the writer identifies himself as Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, Simeon is the Aramaic equivalent of Simon uh, in Greek letters. Um, I didn't know that off the top of my head. I discovered it reading a book, but by the way, I'm also reading a book, I discovered there's a bit of skepticism about whether Peter really wrote this letter. Uh, many accepted it, uh, but there were arguments from others in the early centuries about whether they should. In the end, though, the ancients could find no compelling reason to put this letter in a different category to 1 Peter or the other New Testament letters and books, and plenty of reasons to include it with them. And when modern, the modern scholars who reject the author's claim, they seem to do it by suspending the normal rules about thinking about the authorship of ancient documents. I mention that because you might come across it sometime. The thing is, Peter, who spent years with Jesus, wrote this letter. The same Simon Peter who was uh, fishing with his brother Andrew when Jesus called him to follow. Uh, the same Peter who was there when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain 
uh, and heard God speak about his son. He mentions that near the end of chapter 1. Uh, the same Peter who barely knew what he was saying when he called Jesus Christ Messiah. That Peter. But now he knows what he's talking about. Now he speaks as Jesus Christ's sent servant. As his apostle. One of the witnesses to what Jesus did and what Jesus said. One of the witnesses that Jesus himself chose and sent to teach with his authority. See, he represents Christ. He acts and speaks on Christ's behalf. There's no space between what Peter says on Christ's behalf and what Christ himself says to his church. Christ rules his church through his reliable word. He rules his church through the reliable word of his apostles. And as an apostle, Peter is over his first hearers. He's over them in authority. He's over us in authority. We must listen to what he says because he speaks it with Jesus' authority. But he's also beside us, first one. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, sometimes Bible writers talk about the faith, uh, meaning the true things we're convinced of and trust. But that's not what Peter's doing here. He's talking about their faith, their practical trust. They've heard and become convinced that the gospel is good and true. They've put their practical trust in God who speaks it. They've ex- and their experienced trust in God who speaks is no less valuable than Peter's experienced trust in God who speaks. Ours too. So as Peter talks about progress, uh, about building more, about uh, pushing more, pursuing more, about uh, working with determination and diligence, you and I need to make progress. But the thing to grasp is that we don't begin behind. The first thing to grasp is that we haven't begun behind. We're not second class. We're not substandard because we weren't there to hear Jesus speak or see what Jesus did. Our faith is no less valuable. It's just as precious as Peter's faith. What does that mean? Well, faith is only as good as what it leans on. And his faith and ours, if we're trusting Jesus, it rests on the utterly reliable God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 1 says we've obtained our faith. We've been assigned our faith. We've been given our faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through the rest of what um, Peter writes, he, he uses that word righteousness mostly to talk about rightness and justice and fairness, and I think that's what he's doing here as well. His point is that everyone whose practical trust is in Jesus is saved by Jesus. That Jesus is an equal opportunity saviour. Those who never saw him in the flesh are just as saved as those who did. Gentiles are saved just as much as Jews. 21st century believers are saved just as much as 1st century believers. Peter stands beside us as another someone who is preciously saved through faith 
in the utterly reliable Lord Jesus. Now, it's worth pausing to look briefly at what he says about the Savior. He calls him our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, the man who served his time as a carpenter and worked his trade for years, he is Christ, God's promised king. He is Savior who bore our sins in his body on the tree. He is God, the loving creator and ruler of everything. The, the words are, are straightforward. Peter is calling Jesus God in verse 1, uh, just as surely as he calls him Lord in verse 11. It's the same phrase, just with the word God and Lord. That's the only difference in the other words in verse, verse 1, verse 11. <coughs> he calls Jesus God. And then immediately he, we hear his desire for his hearer's blessings in verse 2. And he says, blessings in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's saying things which maybe for some of us are familiar, but were kind of mind-blowing for first century believers. But Jesus is God. But Jesus is God and there's another person who is God. It took centuries for believers to hammer out words uh, to help us get our heads around uh, what Christ's apostle knew and thought about him. There's an explosion of discussion about Jesus being both God and man. About what it means to say that there is one living, true and holy and merciful God. And yet to talk about Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Words like Trinity started to be used. Deep thinking to help minds begin to grasp what the apostles simply came to believe and assume and speak. That the one who died and is raised is God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we look to him and to his Father to multiply grace and grace grace and peace to us in our knowledge of him. That multiply grace and peace is again about our experience. Coming to know God as our Father and Jesus as our Lord brings us into the experience of grace and peace. Knowing them is knowing their grace. Their unmerited, their unearned, uh, their undeserved kindness and favor. That we who could be condemned are instead forgiven. And not just forgiven, loved. Knowing them is knowing ourselves at peace with them. Not enemies awaiting judgment, but children under their care. Assured that all is well in our relationship with them. Peter's prayer for his hearers in verse 2 is a great thing for us to pray for ourselves and for all who trust Jesus. That our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord would bear fruit in enormous increases in our assurances that though we are still sinful, we are loved. God delights to have us as his children, that all is well in our relationship with them. We're at peace, 
to prayer in verse 2. It's a prayer for progress. Enormous increases. And for that progress and every other aspect of Christian progress, we are richly provided for. Verse 3 to 4. Our progress is provided for. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The first hearers hadn't seen Jesus, neither have we. But we have everything we need in our knowledge of Christ as we encounter him in the scriptures. There are lots of things about progress coming in this letter. I know it's that already. Lots of things coming about progress. But all of it is powerfully provided for by the all-powerful God. He doesn't raise the bar and watch to see whether we can jump over it. He enables, he empowers, he provides, he carries. Specifically here in verse 3, he enables, empowers, and carries us with the clear sight of Christ's glory and excellence. The bestness of who Jesus is. The goodness of what he does. Because it's in his glory and excellence that he has given us his great, his precious and very great promises. As we see Jesus, that we see God's precious and very great promises. The promises we hold to with faith, with practical trust. Promises of grace and peace already. Promises of his care. Promises of his return. Promises of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Promises that when we dwell there, we'll be perfectly righteous. Complete like Jesus. Complete like Jesus in our moral perfection, in what we do. See, as we hold to those promises, it is through them that we become what we're promised to become. See that in the second half of verse 4? Through them, through those precious and very great promises, we become partakers of the divine nature. Godlike in the sense of being Christ-like. Growing in the family likeness. Sharing his nature as those who are no longer captive to the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, but rather like Jesus. There's an already not yet aspect to this. The transformation is already begun, but it's not yet complete. None of us are perfectly Christ-like. Uh, we still experience some of the corruption of sinful desires. But we will escape completely. We will be made perfect. That's part of the promise for the future that we hold on to. Part of the promise for the future that we began to take hold of when we began to take hold of Christ. Progress towards it is what we have everything we need for. Progress towards that perfection is what we have everything we need for 
in our knowledge of Jesus. That's the reality we live in. God has promised. We are his people already. He's empowering us. He's providing for us. We have everything we need for life and godliness. And since that is the reality we live in, verse 5, for this very reason. Ah, well, sit back and wait for him to do it. Sit back and wait for him to make you finally perfect. Well, not at all. Without his empowering, without his enabling, every effort we'd made would inevitably fail, would default back to sinful desire. But with his promise, with his empowering, we can pursue progress. Through his apostle, our God and Savior Jesus commands us to actively pursue progress. Verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. The words build on each other to give us a sense that while we wait, there's room for progress and there will always be room for more progress. While we draw breath in this life, it will never be time to sit back and wait. For those whose practical trust is in Jesus, there will always be room for more virtue, uh, more moral goodness, uh, which lives with the grain of the way that God made us, more knowledge, more practical knowledge of God and salvation and the world he's placed us in, more self-control, more of the ability to do and say what we know is best instead of going with our instincts, more steadfastness, uh, more enduring suffering and, and opposition and shame that come with standing as Christ's people, more godliness, more of that living uh, Monday to Sunday to worship and honor our Savior, more brotherly affection, more of that special commitment to uh, fellow believers as God's family with us, even when they sin against us. More love. More Christ-like, other-person-centered concern for others which spills out in our words and in our actions. So it's not a list to work through and tick off and think, yeah, there, there, there's some of each of those there. It's a list to help us see what pursuing continual progress involves. It's a list to help us see what continual progress involves. What it involves for people who are already loved by God, who are already at peace with God. I've moved on forgotten verse 2. This, this list helps us see what pursuing continual progress looks like for those who are already loved by and at peace with God, for people who will one day be fully and finally conformed to Christ's likeness, for people who are powerfully provided for in the pursuit of that likeness now. How would you use the list? Well, one way to use the list is to let it examine you. 
to, to read it and to think, where does it say you could do with putting special effort into? Where are you most stuck? Let the list examine you and then dig in to see how knowing Christ who called you is relevant to that thing. What is it about him? What is it about what he's done? Or yourself in a relationship with him? Or what he says is good versus what you think is good? Or what truth about him will drive your progress in the area that the list highlights for you? Find what God has revealed that speaks specifically to the area of life the list highlights. And then take hold of it. And ask God to, to cause that truth to take hold of you, to change you. One way to use the list is to let it examine you and then use the rich resource that God has provided to prayerfully pursue progress. Another way to use uh, this list is to read this passage or other passages, passages and to then ask, how does this passage help? <coughs> how does it help with the different things mentioned? Go and read a little bit of Philippians again. You might be reading a psalm. I would like. You might just then ask, how does this passage strengthen and confirm my faith, trust, and confidence in God's good commands and precious promises? How does it motivate a virtuous life that lives with the grain of the way God's made them? How does it expand my practical knowledge of God and salvation and the world and the relationships God has placed me in? How does it feed self-control? How does it strengthen me to stand steadfastly in the face of suffering and opposition? How does it help me to please God in Monday to Sunday life? Does it grow love for believers? Does it help me see how to live out that affection? Uh, does it open my eyes to opportunities to live in uh, costly, gospel-shaped, other person-centered love? Another way to use this sort of list is as we read this passage or any other passage and to think, how does this pass what does this passage help me with? And once we see it, to prayerfully pursue it by holding on to God's rich resource and asking God to cause it to hold on to us. Think of that's the sort of effort that Christ calls us to. The effort which looks to see uh, what's out of step with what's best, and then leans into the resources that he supplies. Or that just grabs the resource and works out, what does this help me with? And ask God to use it to help us. It's work, though. It's working a change. But it's faith work. You see what I mean? Do you see how... This is how we make effort. This is how making effort fits with grace and faith. This is how it's possible to make effort and for what we're doing to still rest on God's grace and be fundamentally about faith. Peter isn't saying, grit your teeth and look at the list and pick the thing you're going to work on and just by sheer determination make it happen. He is saying, pursue change. 
pursue it using the rich resource that God has provided for you. Pursue it by tapping into what God shows you about his son. What God shows you about what you wear, what you need forgiveness for, what true human thriving looks like. Tap in by prayerfully laying in and taking hold of and trusting the truth as it applies to your life. God has promised. We're his people. God is empowering us. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So make every effort by faith. Now, as each of us hear this, we'll either pursue progress or we'll sit back. Uh, There are two ways to live, verses 8 and 9, in response to these, these words. There's obedience and there's disobedience. Uh, sorry, I keep coughing. It's weak old cold clearing um, rather than fresh infection. This passage calls us to make every effort. As we hear it, we either respond with obedience or disobedience. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, if they're already there, if more is being added, the sum, and a little bit more, a little bit more, these qualities will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be effective, useful, fruitful. You'll give glory to Jesus who deserves glory. You'll be useful in his service. But if your life is empty of these, if there's no godliness and no progress, then ineffective and unfruitful are exactly the words. The things you know about Jesus aren't doing in you the things they're supposed to do. And life in relationship with Jesus is not producing what it's intended to produce. Verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, this this nearsighted blind description is harder to hear in a context where everyone who's nearsighted wears glasses. Uh, Take the glasses off, and you you see people squinting to try to read, and put them back on. See, people who say something about Jesus but live no godliness. It's like they're squinting to see what's going on, but they're squinting to the point that their eyes are just closed. They're blind to everything. They see nothing. It's like the focus has pulled in and in and in until they neither see their past nor their future. They live in their own little bubble, caught off in their thinking from both past and future. Things they once have said they needed forgiveness for, well, they no longer see a sin. A forgiveness uh, that they once rejoiced in, they're gone. They've closed their eyes to what Christ has done. They've closed their eyes to Christ's purpose for them. They've closed their eyes to Christ. 
and the result is they're coasting. They are ineffective and unfruitful for Christ and his gospel. And I think we're supposed to wonder where such people stand. Are they saved or not? Will they be forgiven in the end or not? I think we're supposed to wonder because the next thing Peter says is this, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, and the word he uses includes sisters too, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <coughs> He's saying, work with the grain of Christ's purpose. Work with the grain of Christ's choosing and calling you. And you'll see him work in you. And your confidence that you're chosen and called will grow. You'll be more certain now. Work with the grain of Christ's purpose. Work with the grain of his choosing and calling you. And you'll see him at work in you. And you'll be more certain now. As you see uh, what to make effort, every effort at, and as you make that effort by leaning in to and trusting Christ's word, uh, as your practical trust in him is effective and fruitful in who you're becoming and who you're serving, you'll feel greater assurance and confidence that you are his. If you practice these qualities as things you work at by faith, in God who has given you everything you need to grow through your knowledge of Jesus, you will never fall. You'll never fall because your Monday to Sunday experience of living will be living these things as overflows and expressions of trust in God's good commands and precious promises. Life will be faith. All of it. You'll never fall because your life will be faith. Verse 11 has a little play on words that doesn't uh, make it through to English. Uh, the same Greek word is trans translated supplement in verse 5 and provided in verse 11. Let me try with the word add. As you work to add to your faith, God will richly add for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's another emphasis on God's generosity. Every little by little we add to faith, we add because he's made it possible. Because his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And to those who have added little by little, empowered and enabled by him, he richly provides, generously adds, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These, these verses, they're together designed to see, help us see the unbelievably generous God. See how generous he has been to us in welcoming us into his family as his loved, forgiven, at peace with him children to see what he's provided for us into our future. They place our pursuit of progress in the context of what he richly provides. 
It's like he provides the recipe, the ingredients, the kitchen, uh, the picture of the end product, the assistance along the way. These verses show us God who provides generously. But they don't leave room for coasting. Seeing God provide is motivation for us to make every effort. I think we should ask ourselves, uh, you should ask yourself, are you making every effort at your Christian life? If anyone knew what you know, would they look at your life and think you are deeply determined to grow in godliness? One of our aims as, as church and sojourn is to help that be true for every believer. For each of us uh, to be helping it be true for one another and be helped by one another, that we would be deeply determined to grow in godliness. What our Sundays, discipleship groups, conversations around the place are for. Uh, conversations, discipleship groups, conversations where we don't just grow in knowledge uh, or don't just acknowledge areas where we're not what we should be but where we hold firmly to the truth about Jesus that deeply assures us that though we are sinful, we are loved, and all is well in our relationship with God our Father through Christ our Savior. Sundays to discipleship groups and conversations where we don't just grow in knowledge or acknowledge areas of life where we're not what we should be, but where we help one another see how to pursue progress by leaning into the resource that God has provided. And then praying and reminding and encouraging uh, one another to make every effort while we, while we wait for the day when the corruption of the sinful nature will have no more hold on us when we will be fully and finally conformed to the image of God's Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please do grip us. Please grip us with the reality, uh, the truth, uh, the, the sight of the Lord Jesus. We ask that seeing him we will see your grace and peace, your love, your forgiveness, the assurance that all is well with you as we trust in your Son. Father, you ask with that seeing your rich provision for us, your, your rich purpose for us to make us like Jesus, that we would be persuaded and enabled by your Spirit to make every effort in the pursuit of that new life, that more and more we, our lives would be marked by faith which fails out and is expressed in, in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And Father, please use us in our fellowship with one another to be such a blessing to one another that we would richly rejoice together 
in what you've done by your Spirit, through your Word, as we loved one another while we wait for the glorious day. We ask it in your Son. Amen.